Welcome to Groove Therapy, the premier podcast exploring the intersection between live music and health and wellness with experts Dr. Leah Taylor and Tara Lee Weathers. In this podcast, you will learn how live music positively affects well-being through a combination of scientific research and personal experience from your hosts, favorite musicians, industry professionals, and fans like you. Also included are strategies to incorporate the benefits of live music into your everyday life. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Groove Therapy Podcast. Hey, hey, hey. We're so excited to spend some time with you. Yes, we are. And we have a fabulous guest. His name is Adam Weinberg. And he does so many things in the music industry and is also a big fan of live music. He's been a Fish fan for a really long time, which he talks about in this interview. And he's just such an interesting guy to talk about. We got to talk about some spirituality in live music and all about his process of writing his most recent album, Laugh, Cry, Grief, Hope. So he is a musician. He does have his own solo album that just came out last year. He's also toured with Mattis Yahoo for like five years or so. He's about to start touring with him again. And he also is the VP of Marketing and Touring for famed tenor Andrea Bocelli for more than 17 years. So he handles the tour routing, the marketing, the artist relations, production, all kinds of things in that. That's kind of like his day job. He talks a little bit about that as well. And he's just an all-around awesome guy that got really honest and some things that he's been going through and how he uses music to really express and work through that. Yeah, it's a really interesting interview. So you're all going to definitely want to keep listening because you're going to learn so much and have your eyes opened to maybe something that you hadn't realized before when it comes to live music and health and wellness holistic aspect. So before we dive into that and start talking to Adam... Put your hands on your heart if that is available to you and take a deep breath in through your nose. Exhale out your mouth. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. And picture yourself about an hour from now. You would just listen to this episode and you're super inspired by everything that Adam has shared and it feels really good and you feel empowered and excited to rock your day. And you're going to bring that into that present moment and the here and now so you can absorb everything that that is and what is going to happen. And so it is. And so it is. All right. Well, I'm just really excited for you to hear this interview. Me too. Let's get to it. Let's do it. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, we are back and we have Adam here with us. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. You're so welcome. Thanks for coming to join us in this chat today. We're excited to talk to you. Excited to be spoken to and speak to you. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, we were just doing a little chatting before we started this interview and we were talking to Adam. We have a lot to talk to you about everything that you do in the music industry. Yeah, but we're like, first talk about us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Adam was talking about how he found us during the pandemic and I had a question about what was one of his favorite episodes. So we decided to to catch this in the interview. So Adam, we don't even know this yet. So you're hearing this for the first time that we do. What is one of your favorite group therapy episodes? So I'm a huge... Like when I was in college, I was a huge fan of the Slip and Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey. And I'm a massive Reed Mathis fan. I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> Even Did though you I really? didn't know. I just knew. So there were a few that I heard early on. I don't remember the exact dates, but I listened to a lot of stuff about Reed. <laughs> During the pandemic, I kind of rediscovered... The Slip and Jacob Fred like played a lot together in those days. And so they like go to Jazz Fest to play, but whatever, they kind of co-mingled. So... I was seeking that stuff out again during the pandemic and I ran across that episode. But then the other one that was really interesting to me, which I think gave me the courage to reach out to you both in the first place, was you interviewed Elizabeth Beck, the the writer. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she's like a friend that I made during COVID through just like fish stuff, creative stuff. And I actually recently had a show in Lexington, where she lives, actually not so recently, in, in July. And her and her husband came and they came to the show and they picked me up and they took me out for dinner and I met all their friends. And so I've listened to a lot of your episodes at this point. I really love the Karina Reichman one that you did recently. Al from Mo, that was another one. But the Reed, I'll be honest, the Reed Madness was the first first one. That's the one where we roped you in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was like, this is so cool. And then the Peter, and then I think I actually reached out to you both the first time after listening to the Peter one from Goose, because that kind of like reminded me, like, oh yeah, I really like this podcast. And just like the therapy aspect of it, and that you're going beyond kind of a lot of just the normal, like nerding out about just the music stuff. And I come from a psychology background and spiritual-ish type of background as well, kind of fused with modern psychology. So it just was like, wow, this is a lot of things that I like. Yeah, well, we love that. Yeah, we like to nerd out on the spirituality and the psychology of live music. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of our thing. <laughs> it's a good thing you found or you have. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for reaching out. And yeah, some of the things that you mentioned, I love that, you know, you helped to start the Shabbat tent at like fish shows and festivals and really like bringing in that spiritual aspect and helping people. When I was, reading a little bit more about it, like it reminded me too of accessible festivals and just allowing people to have a space that they can come and kind of just like be and not be so activated by everything else that's going on. So I'd love to hear, that seems like it was more in the early days of your journey. Yeah, correct. I was raised Jewish when my father became, not particularly religious, but my father became religious when I was in high school. And, you know, I kind of like got way into fish, like a lot of people around, I was 14 or 15 years old. So at a similar time, and it quickly kind of became very religious-y fish, you know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like go to every show, do do everything you can. Because you're from the Northeast, is that correct? No, I'm from, my, I'm from Miami, actually. Oh, so. right. You live in Florida. Okay. Yeah. And to my father's credit, actually, the very first fish show I wanted to go to was uh, Sunrise Musical Amphitheater, which no longer exists in uh, Sunrise, Florida. And it was on Friday night, which is Shabbat. My father asked that I stay. He didn't force me. He just said, you know, I want to go with some friends. And he was like, 
he said, look, if you stay home and be part of this family thing that we're now trying called Shabbat, I'll take you to any other show you want to go to. I'll drive you personally, you know. And so he was very, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't dogmatic in the sense of like, he understood my love for this thing that he didn't understand. And he was asking me to respect this thing that maybe I didn't understand. So what did you do? I didn't go. I didn't go to the show. We went to, I think, the Orlando show a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. But my dad did then take me and all of my friends the next year in 95. He drove, I think I was 15 or 16 then, and he drove myself and you know a handful of other kids to go. So he was very cool about it. Did he go to the show with you or did he just drop you guys off? No, no. He went to the show and he's come to a few shows. He came to some of the Miami New Year's Eve shows years later. Both my parents did. The reason I bring that up is simply because when I then went to college and kind of started, was away from whatever tension was in the house at that time, you know, when one parent, I mean, my mom and dad have a wonderful relationship, thank God, now with that stuff. But, you know, there's tension in the beginning with those types of changes. So when I got to college and I wanted to sort of explore this stuff for myself, and I started wanting to do some of those things or at least explore them, I still wanted to go to fish. I mean, one of my earliest memories with friends of mine who were already people who observed Shabbat in a more traditional religious sense was on a Friday night, them asking me to go with them to like a Friday night dinner for Shabbat and me telling them, no, I'm getting on a Greyhound bus right now to go to Cincinnati to see fish. I was in school in St. Louis. And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. Like, you guys do that. I'm going to go see fish. So when I discovered this guy, Rav Shmuel, who had started the initially was trying to do these things for Jews at fish shows, trying to be a resource like, hey, you might really be into Shabbat or want kosher food, but you also really want to be at a fish show. And he was trying to find a way to to make that comfortable. You said like a space for people with those particular backgrounds. And then I jumped the opportunity to help him and started working and, and doing what I could to make that space more welcoming and inviting. And you know, one of my favorite memories is a friend of mine and I flew him in from... He lives in Israel at the time. Then now he lives in New York. But at the time, we flew him in from Israel for Big Cyprus. And I remember we set up a tent and we had, I don't know, 20, 30 people or something for Shabbat before that set. I just remember there's fireworks going off and there's this group of Jews praying in this sort of amalgam of chaos. And the tent across from us was blasting the Beastie Boys at like full volume, right? And it's just like, this is who I am. Like, this is absolutely perfect. Like, I got the spiritual Jewish thing going on. I got my friends over there rocking out to the Beastie Boys. I got fireworks going off. Like, this is, this is what I was aiming for. That's so <laughs> awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And thanks for reflecting on that experience. I was kind of wondering, you know, like, what is one of the things that stands out to you? And how did you notice or like, because we talk a lot about, you know, spirituality and live music. Just curious, your thoughts on that from either what you've seen or what you've found within yourself. I mean, I think they're unbelievably similar. One, it's people looking for community. I think music provides community. I think spiritual disciplines provide community and communities with similar values. I don't think we always need to sort of overanalyze what the value sets are, but you know, it doesn't mean like you and I may have very similar values, but they may not be identical. But if there's enough sort of concentric circles, we may feel kinship or, you know, a familial type of feeling and emotion. And I think that in itself is very primal or maybe evolutionary biologists would say, you know, we're social creatures. I think that's what made COVID so hard, you know, being isolated. I mean, one story I always explain about my neighborhood here, which is near Miami Beach, they closed the beach where you could very... And I'm not making any comment about right or wrong. I think everyone did the best they could during COVID. It's just an observation that I had. Was They closed the beach where everyone could be very distant apart. It's a small neighborhood. 
it's a big beach. So they closed the beach. Okay, I get it. Be safe. So then everyone, where'd everyone go? They went to the walking path next to the beach. Well, that's a much narrower space. Okay, okay. So well, that's definitely clearly more of a problem during COVID. So what they do? Well, they close the walking path. So now what? Well, people are social creatures. So like people started throwing like parties in their backyard. Well, that's clearly worse than like when we were all 20 feet apart on the beach. So I think similarly, concerts were seeking music culture. We're seeking that communion with people. Spirituality, we're seeking that communion with people empirically, meaning we can see and feel each other. And then whatever the great beyond may provide to that experience as well. And I think there's a real discipline to it. I mean, this may be way off base. It's the narrative I've concocted in my head. So tell me, I'm curious if you agree or not. But for me, and this may be the nerd aspect of how I approach music also, but like a lot of the music in the jam band or fish scene, there's a discipline to it. There's a statistics to it. There's, oh, did he get all of Fluffhead right? Did Trey make a flub? How many shows have I seen? Am I chasing this song? What's the mix? Like now there's this big debate online that the mix is bad on Mike's bass. Like <laughs> there's all this bizarre discipline that, and you study, you almost study for it, right? And it's through experience, it's through going to shows, but it's also through then afterwards, listening to the shows and re-listening to that jam. And from my perspective as a musician, like I'm blown away at how jams and a variety of bands evolve. You know, are they changing keys? Are they finding ways to mix up the rhythm? Are they just changing modes? Whatever it is that they're doing, you know, oh, what did the bass player do there that caused everyone else to make this shift that was very emotional in the music? And that takes work. It actually takes like either experiential work, like going to shows and experience it, or it takes like homework work, which I don't think any of us think about as homework, but it's listening to all those tapes when we were younger and are you talking about from a, a musician perspective or as a listener? As a listener, yeah, as a listener. Like you're listening to the shows and whether you understand the the musical theory, who cares? Like, you know, you've had a visceral relationship with that song. That's why you're re-listening to it. Spirituality also requires a certain amount of discipline. It requires going... Yes, there are obviously plenty of versions of spirituality which are on the mountaintop and isolated. But there are also, at least from a Jewish perspective that's not an ideal. The ideal is community. The ideal is together. See, there's that experiential thing. And then it's doing the homework. Well, why am I connecting to this prayer and not that prayer? Well, I don't really know what this prayer means. Let me look at it. Well, I really connect with it. So I'm going to get deep into it, or I'm going to redo it the way I say it. I want to say it differently, or I don't connect with it. So let me find something else that I do connect with. And that's, to me, that's almost like an analogy. Like you have the bathroom break songs, you have the songs that like, if someone talks next to you, damn them to hell. I can't believe you talk during the Reba Jam or whatever it is, right? So it's like, I feel like there's all these similarities in the way we seek out whatever this feeling is that we get from a music community or a spiritual community. And that's just kind of, for me, they both provided something very similar. And so being able to have both at the same time is great. Yeah, I've never really thought about that, you know, kind of like how religion is structured and how we approach music is structured. So that's a great new way to think about it. For me, it's just about how do I feel when I'm there? And like, is it really having that connection with something that's larger than myself and something that I can't describe with words in a way that, you know, like it's bigger than that? No, I, I agree with that, that sentiment as well. I think the only thing I would maybe add to that is, is that sometimes the feeling is 
instinctual. It's a natural. It's almost like a reflex. Like you get to that first show, you don't know what you're going to. And then it's like, boom, like my life has changed. That's what it was for me at the Great Went. Like I was really into fish before the Great Went. But at the Great Went, I was like, I get that I should be a productive member of society, but I could also see like not being one and just doing this all the time. You know what I mean? Like, like it was that kind of feeling. Like I never want this to end. But sometimes you don't get that but you still may see the value of what's kind of happening. And so you can choose maybe not to engage or you can just say, well, I know that there's an experience here that I could have. Like you're saying like this beyond myself, greater feeling, how do I access that? And what would it require me to maybe access that in this setting? Yeah. Which is a lot of what we talk about here. You know, how can you take what you're getting there and and bring it into your everyday life? What do you think it was about the great went that made you want to kind of throw everything else away and just stay there forever? I don't know. I, I mean, I was there with one of my closest childhood friends who was also a phenomenal piano player. I didn't have a lot of like serious music friends growing up, but he was kind of the one. We were completely unprepared. We were, I think, 16. His parents were taking a vacation in Maine. So we flew... Or in Canada. So we flew into Maine with them and they just dropped us off on the side of the road. We were so ill-prepared. Like in hindsight, with my own kids, I'm like, I can't believe (laughs) how this was handled. And they're very responsible people. I just think it was like, there wasn't a real internet. There wasn't a real this. Like, how did you... You had the tickets. We didn't really know. We were. I was like really by myself with this one other guy, Seth. Did you have any camping equipment or any anything? That So that's where when I think back, I'm like, something was very wrong because my parents are very responsible also. But we didn't bring anything. I think we each had like a backpack, but I did have plans. I had a plan to meet up with a friend who was kind of like an older sister of mine who was whatever, oddly dating an old camp counselor of mine. And they told us they were in a green or some color VW bug with New Jersey license plates. And in my mind, like, great. Like that shouldn't be hard to find (laughs) among 80,000 people. (laughs) Never found them, but very fortunately ran into another friend named Joey the first night and we slept in his tent with him. He just let us sleep with him. And that was how it went. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think maybe just that kind of youthfulness, having to figure it out for yourself. No one's there to help you and getting through it. And then I think they just played ridiculous like that. That's one of the sets I listen to the most all the time is the second set from the second day. The, the Down with Disease, the Bathtub Gin is famous from that. The Harry Hood is famous from that. That was like one of those first glow stick wars. I don't know, something about the way they played. And I think just the sort of being on my own in a sense. Yeah. And everything working out. And working out. Yeah. I missed my flight on the way home. I was supposed to meet my parents in Boston to start looking at colleges. I didn't check in for the flight. I thought you just like walked up and handed your ticket. And I I hadn't checked in. And so they'd give them my seat away. And I have no cell phones. Didn't know how to contact my parents. Mm -hmm. Just sitting in a Bangor, Maine airport for hours, hoping my parents weren't freaking out, waiting for the next flight. Anyways, that's that story. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a musician at the time? Or like into playing music on your own? Yeah, I started playing like many kids. 10 or 11, my parents made me play piano. I played piano for a while. And then Hurricane Andrew came and blew my house away. Along with it, my music teacher moved. And I couldn't... I don't remember why, but we couldn't find another piano t-shirt and I just was like my dad had an old guitar I was like well I'll do that instead and just start playing guitar yeah and you've done a lot of that I mean you are contributing so much to the music industry whether that's on the back end booking shows and helping other people get out there you've also just come out with your own album which 
using your experience with, which I love to talk about, you know, I know you really described. So the name of it is Laugh, Cry, Grief, Hope. So good. It's so good. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. (laughs) It was... uh, I mean, I have a bunch of solo albums, but they're all instrumental. This is the first one where I tried to learn how to sing and write lyrics. And um, for anyone who's listened to it, they may get it. But I wrote it after the death of my brother-in-law from a drug overdose. My wife and I have known each other since we were 16. He was a friend, a close friend of mine for all that time, you know, for whatever it was been 20 years or something. So he struggled a lot with addiction. We were intimately involved with his really concerted efforts to try, but it's a it's a hell of a dangerous thing. And especially in the fentanyl age, it's you don't really get a second chance. That's unfortunately all too common a story. But so after that, you know, we all had a, a very hard time, obviously, with it, accepting it. So this was kind of my outlet. My therapist actually recommended it, not specifically to make an album, but just to make sure I was playing music every day as a form of like getting my head somewhere else besides my own problems that arose as a result of his death and just some hard stuff in my family at the time and my wife's grieving and my my young kids who are young at the time. So it was just an incredible way to process grief. And at the end of it, because my therapist made me play five nights a week minimum and then send her the recordings as like evidence that I was playing. Did it start out as an album or you were really just playing it for therapy? Yeah, I wrote one song with lyrics for another friend who was going through a hard time who asked me. He was like the band I had in college, which was called The Ill Tet, still some of my favorite people in the world to play with. We was fully instrumental stuff. Like we sound a lot like Tortoise, if you know that band. You know, we played with The Slip a lot and those kind of guys, but mostly instrumental stuff. And I had a friend who was like our number one fan. He had a son who, thank God, is doing okay, but who was two years old and had a brain tumor. Went through multiple brain surgeries to carefully remove the tumor. And he and his wife were basically living in a hospital in San Francisco while this was going on. And kind of all our old college friends got together and were sending food everywhere to meal train so they didn't have to worry about food. Three meals a day were being delivered to them. Whatever we could do, we were sending people to visit, anything we could do. So he texted me one day, was like, I need you to write a song. That's what I want from you, write a song. And I don't write a lot of lyrics. This is maybe a year before I seriously started the album. It's the first song in the album called Quiet. And I started writing that song for his son. And it was sort of... The image was like being stuck in a hotel room with all of this sort of dread and anxiety that your son... You know, I'm trying to picture my friend John and you know, his son's going through this horrible thing as a two-year-old, he and his wife. And like, all you want is quiet, but like the machines are beeping and the doctors are coming in and the nurses are coming in and there's surgery happening and your parents and your in-laws are coming and there is no quiet. So what's the response? It's not an option. So is there like a method of like acceptance of that? Like, is there a way to grow strength from the noise? Like, what does the noise represent? Well, the beeping is the things really keeping your son alive and the chatter and the noise of friends and family, while maybe overwhelming, is love, right? It's like all these things. So that was the that's how that song started. I didn't finish it. I actually wrote it on piano and I probably wrote the first verse or something. And then when my brother-in-law died and I started this exercise, I was kind of looking through my voice memo notes on my phone. And I was just saving these little improvisations every night and sending them to my therapist. And I noticed the song from like a year before. And I was like, oh, I should finish that song now with this other idea. And so the second half of it is is the noise in your head when you're going through illness anxiety, which I was struggling with at the time. So first half was about literal noise outside of you. The second half is about the stuff inside. 
So that was how it started. That was like, like, oh, I can kind of do this. I just need like the right... I don't have to only write fingerstyle instrumental music. Like maybe I can write something for my wife and my kids and myself. So that's how it started. And then I ended up with like 30 little snippets of music. And then I have a really good friend who's an incredible composer and arranger. He's a, he's a drummer primarily. He plays drums on the record. But he also wrote all the string and horn charts on the record. He can write for orchestra. So he did all that. And we started meeting and I would play him snippets and he would give me ideas and we'd bounce ideas back and forth. And that's how it started. And then we whittled down 30 ideas to 12 and then there was an album. <laughs> that's awesome. And you mentioned that these experiences that you just described, your own experiences that you went through, like really brought about this anxiety that you had never experienced in your life before. I mean, maybe you had had anxiety before, but all of a sudden it was real and all-encompassing. Right. It was generalized. It was diagnosed as generalized illness anxiety. So 24-7 from sunup to sundown, I was certain something medical was going to kill me. Mm -hmm. I mean, as things as petty as a spider bite on my arm, I was convinced for a week was going to become a staph infection and I'd be dead in a month. Reflux was instantly esophageal cancer. It's crazy to think back on it now because I'm so far, fortunately, with the help of uh, therapists and you know friends and wife and all that kind of stuff. But it's crazy to think back of being in the headspace, being totally convinced of those things. But it was very real. It was very, very real. <laughs> and you mentioned too that there was... So your therapist was doing cognitive behavioral therapy with you. Correct, yeah. And so in your note to us, you said that the, your album kind of combines like CBT. Can you talk a little bit about how that is incorporated into the album? For sure. So like even just going back to that first song, Quiet, like so the second... Well, I mean, I guess all the verses I can spin it that way now. But, you know, intentionally, this the second verse is is very much about exposure therapy, which is a CBT type of idea. So I mean, one of the exercises she had me do, which again, just sounds nuts in hindsight. But so I remember one time I went in and I was like this chest pain, which was reflux when you're stressed. You know, reflux is a common thing of being stressed or anxious. But then I was very much those things. But the pain, I was like, it's esophageal cancer, right? So she was like, okay, so why do you care about esophageal cancer? I was like, well, I would die. Okay, well, what's wrong with dying? Well, I'd be dead. Okay, so what? You know, and I'd be like, well, I don't want to die. Well, why not? Well, I, I like being alive. No, well, why? Well, because I like, you know, my wife and my kids and my friends. So you'd be, would you be sad? Yeah, I'd be really sad. She'd be like, okay, great. Record everything you just said and then play it. 20, not 24-7, that's exaggeration, for hours, many, many hours a day, I would just have it as a loop of my own voice telling myself this fear as an exposure exercise. So that's the other half of that quiet song is that like, instead of trying to quiet the noise in your head and being like, I don't want the anxiety, I don't want the bad thoughts, I don't want to be afraid, it was the opposite. I was telling myself for hours a day, listening to my own voice on the brink of tears sometimes when I would record this stuff, depending on like how bad it was on a particular day. And just complete like negating the quiet, like bringing the noise in very intensely. Now, it took a lot of work to get to a point where I could handle that, right? As I'm sure it does with anyone. At first, it was like debilitating. Yeah. Because you have to build your resources, like internal resources to be able to really take that in and sit with it. That's part of it too. Correct. And that took a long time to learn that. I don't want to like make that seem simple. At least for me, it was not simple. It was the first, you know, probably two or three months that I couldn't do it. You know, I could just do it for a minute and then I'd freak out. But you're also increasing your internal resources by listening to it with the exposure. A hundred percent. Exactly. So that was really helpful for me. 
the song Your Time, which at least by the numbers seems to be the song people listen to the most. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not too prideful to pretend like I don't pay attention to see every few weeks or so what songs people are listening to, like on Spotify or whatnot. So that that song seems by leaps and bounds to be the one that, that people gravitate over. But that song was about over-identifying with loss, which there's a lot of CBT exercises with that. So I really thought, I mean, without getting too deep into it, but a lot of the rehabilitation attempts that my brother-in-law took... I mean, again, this is this is the ego speaking, and, and in hindsight, you do the best you can, and you don't control the outcomes. But in my mind, it's like, okay, my wife doesn't have a background in this. My in-laws don't have a background in this. I have a background in cognitive psychology. I've studied substance abuse. I can save him, you know. So I'll pick the rehab he goes to. I'll talk to the psychiatrist there. I'll when he ends up in detox, I'll speak to them about it. And I was doing all those things, and then like. My mother-in-law would call me instead of other people about it. And I built this like false confidence up like as if I knew anything that I was doing, which was not correct. I was doing the best I could, but I created this sort of sense of confidence. Like if I'm involved, it must work, which is complete nonsense. So when he died, I very much over-identified with it and for a long time felt that guilt, like extreme guilt. And asked my in-laws many times over months, like, do you blame me? Do you blame me? You know, this kind of thing. So that song was about over-identifying. And then the last verse is sort of the CBT model of flipping it into this idea that I'm saying where it's like, it can hurt, you can accept the pain, you can identify with it. But again, the job as anyone, as a friend, lover, whatever, is to hopefully have the best version of yourself out there, but simultaneously recognize you don't control the outcomes. And that was a big acceptance practice that we did in CBT. And that's how that song kind of starts as like fear of having what happened to someone else happen to you because of your involvement, like as if there's some retribution that you deserve. And then moving away from that into kind of an acceptance and almost calm of being like, I accept I did the best I could. And maybe you didn't do the best I could. So fine, analyze that. What can you learn from next time? But never cross that threshold of like, because I did the best I could, therefore, X outcome is guaranteed. And it sounds obvious, but I think my ego needed a lot of deflating at that time. And so, you know, it's a hard way to learn that lesson. Yeah, Yeah. I know like so many people can relate to that. And, you know, the songs that I always resonate with the most make me feel something, make me relate to it in some way. And so by you using CBT to like bring that forward, it's like bringing people in that can relate to that and helping them to like look at it and maybe find some healing. And that's so beautiful and so amazing. And I never even thought about that. Some of the songs that I really love and I love the words and I'll listen to it over and over and over again and cry and laugh and like have whatever, like an emotional roller coaster. And like, that's what's happening. So thank you for putting that into words. (laughs) (laughs) My my pleasure. I mean, look, music is un questionably therapeutic, I think. We may not all know why, and I don't even know if we need to care why, but it definitely is. I mean, I'll make two more short points. One is the last song I've been drifting through is kind of an encapsulation of all the CBT stuff that I learned. And there's a great book for anyone who's interested, in my opinion, called Overcoming Unwanted Intrusive Thoughts, which is a CBT-based guide to any kind of intrusive thought, whether it's anxiety or depression or fear or and sort of the model at the end, once you kind of do all the work, and there's a lot of exposure exercises in it, has this stage. Now, I'll mess it up because I'm not looking at it, but it's close enough. But the idea is, is the first thing, once you're at a level where you can do it, is you kind of recognize what the thought is, right? So you identify the thought. 
you then notice what actual reaction thoughts causing. So let's say for me, it was illness, anxiety. So, okay, my chest hurts. So, okay, I recognize my chest hurts. The thought is the pain must be some kind of something very bad, not reflux. It must be worse than that. Okay. So then the next point is, is this concept of like feeling the pain from like a third party, almost like a, like a scientist in a lab. So close your eyes, do like the deep breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth, very slow, big belly, that kind of stuff. And sort of thinking of the pain, what does it feel like? Is it pressure? Is it sharp? Where is it? Is it radiating? Like if you were to describe it for like a term paper, like how would you describe this pain? So you kind of almost now you've accepted it. Now you've distanced yourself from it as like a third party. And then this concept of like feeling and floating with it, where then you stop thinking about it, just feel what it's doing to you. And then this one to me is the key. And it like blew my mind when I read it, because when you're in a highly anxious or depressed state, it's so hard to recognize is you then recognize that time has passed and nothing bad has happened, which to me is this incredible realization because when you're in those types of states, at least for me, I'll only speak for myself, you think that every millisecond of that pain is the last millisecond before something terrible happens, right? Like that's what's happening. It's this feedback loop of pain, something bad, pain, something bad. And when you recognize that you've done this exercise, it takes seven or 10 minutes. And then you say, oh, all that time has passed and it's exactly what it was 10 minutes ago. Nothing bad happened. It's just it's the same thing where I was when I started. And so then that's, they call this concept drifting through. So you're like drifting from like this beginning and you're drifting through this kind of recognition. And then the last step is basically say like, F you, I've got stuff to do pain or whatever the <laughs> thought is. And then you pick something concrete and you start doing it immediately, right? Something productive. So you just move. So that's what the last song is about. But I'll tell you, I got beat up a lot online for it and I accept it. But during COVID, I made my wife and my kids do all these ridiculous videos that we were like making. I didn't know what to do with myself. I'm in the concert industry. There were no shows. So trying to have fun. I learned how to use video stuff and I bought a green screen. And so there was somebody online and I'm forgetting her name and I apologize, but she wanted to do this Everything's Right project during COVID. Did you? Were you in her group by any chance? Yes, that's uh, Robin. Yes, thank you. So... She was like, yeah, everyone's going to make a video singing Everything's Right. Yeah, I'm in it. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And we'll combine it. And I was like, that's great. So we did it. We sent it. And then I was like, I'm going to do my own also. Like in addition to the one we sent it, I'm going to make this like crazy one with green screen and I'm going to play all the instruments. And so it's a good project. We'll kill a couple days, you know, while I have no other job. And so we did it and it's cheesy and great, whatever. I love it. But when I posted it, I wrote this whole thing about what that song meant to me. I will admit, Everything is Right was not my favorite song when it came out. But when, but when I was in like a not a great situation, listening to a song like that had a very emotional impact. So I wrote that and I posted with it. And like so many of the people who knock those types of songs that Trey has written, like came down, like they posted it on like a fantasy tour and everyone like, you're the cheesiest human being. And like people just like rip me to shreds. Of like course. This is... I mean, that's what fantasy tour is about anyway. Like, Yeah, I've got ripped to shreds on that <laughs> so many times because I'm, I'm positive. So I'm super annoying to them. <laughs> right. So I was really proud of it. I was like, my kids are dancing in it. It reminded me of like what this song meant. So anyways, it's a very circuitous and long answer. But when you're saying, you know, like music can have that therapeutic sense and it can tie into these things. Having someone just tell you everything's right, and it may be wrong, it may not even be true, but just that idea, just that exposure of like someone pushing back on your negative biases is such a powerful thing. 
I remember listening to that song, driving to one of my first therapy sessions and being overcome with a minimal amount of calm, you know, at the time and like a sense of hope. What is more therapeutic than that? I like the one thing you said that it was like, okay, I went through this amount of time and I didn't experience any pain. So I'm probably going to be like nothing changed from here. That I feel like that's what happens every time I go to a live music experience. It's like, maybe you go in and you're like, oh, have all these thoughts, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. And then a lot, when I'm at the show, that is not how I'm feeling. Right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, that, that existed. That time passed and I was okay. Right. Isn't that like an amazing thing? Like the human mind is so tricky like that. You know, like you could be before the show depressed, at the show in heaven, and then after the show depressed, and you're like, well, I'm depressed. Well, yeah, really? What happened in those three hours? We just need to figure out how to access this other thing that's happening. And not so identify with the thoughts or the feelings. That's why it's so helpful to take it outside of yourself. You know, you're talking about describing the pain as if it is just something that's happening to you because it is, it's just something that's happening to you. But our brain, this also reminds me of what we were talking about with Annabelle, where fear is false evidence appearing real. That's really taking time to create other evidence (laughs) that shows, okay, look, you've been here for seven or eight minutes and you haven't combusted or you haven't died. You haven't like, you're not rushing off to the hospital right now. You know, you're still here. That's right. And by being present with that pain, you know that it hasn't changed in those seven or eight minutes. It's still the same. Therefore, okay, you're going to be okay. Yes, you have this pain, but it's not catastrophe like our brain likes to catastrophize. I know. And it sounds so simple when you, and you articulate it so beautifully and it sounds so simple, but I'm sure for anyone who's experienced it, it's not. But when you're out of it, you can just describe it as beautifully and parsimoniously as you just did. Like, it's like, yeah, no kidding. It makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's not easy to work through that. Yeah. Yeah. I have an experience too with a friend with Everything's Right. Actually, we were at a show, we were at Dick's and she, in the middle of the show, like started freaking out about this thing that, you know, got into her head and she was all worried about it. And she told me a little bit about it. And then they went right into Everything's Right. And I was like everything's right. (laughs) And it's... Why not? (laughs) I love live music so much for the fact that it allows us an opportunity to hear those lyrics, right? We can take it in as much as we want to take it in, but we're having... We can sing it. We're usually expressing it at the same time. So not only are we hearing it, but we're also saying it to ourselves too. And we're able to move our bodies at the same time. So it's such, you know, this is why it's such a mind, body, spirit integrative practice that can be so therapeutic because it helps us to work through things that, you know, might be freaking us out anyway. And of course, she needed a little bit of extra help (laughs) to get through that. It's not always the, the magic bullet, but it can be really helpful. And especially, you know, I know a lot of people not, Trey's lyrics and the way that they've gone and whatever. But I love, it's so powerful to be singing about love and light with thousands and thousands of people. Like, I think it's really important and I love it. Yeah, it's a sound healing experience. Yeah. Mm. It's way different if he was like, die, everybody. Like that would be different. <laughs> well, that's definitely putting out a different energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's also all, it's like everyone projecting also, I'm not judging anyone who doesn't like them, that's fine. You cannot like them. Uh, there's plenty of things I don't like, but like it's also projecting like expectations. Like I want music to be this for me. And if it's not that for me, then 
you know, I'm out. But when you're just saying that, it reminds me of, have you ever read like, or know like the worried mind and then like wise mind, that dichotomy? It's similar to what you were just saying, but it's, it's maybe a different way to conceptualize it, which I found very useful, which is like, sometimes you'll have a thought that's like a worrying thought. So let's just say the thought is, I'll just stick to the same one because it's easy. Like, okay, so the pain in the chest is dangerous. And then, oh, false comfort. That's the other part. So then false comfort says, no, it's not. No, it's not. You have reflux. So then worried mind says, really? It's reflux? Why don't you Google those symptoms and see what Google has to say about it? (laughs) So then you Google it and Google lists every horrible thing in the universe, right? So then false comfort says, yeah, but that's not really your symptoms. You should keep Googling. You You should keep exploring. So there's this back and forth where the more false comfort we're anthropomorphizing our minds, but you know, you're, the more you engage false comfort into responding to the worry, the more power you give worried mind. Worried mind's like, oh yeah, false comfort? Let me show you this. Like, Just keeps hitting back with another, like, boom, boom, just keeps hitting back. So you want to get to a point of wise mind, which is like, okay, you two idiots keep debating. I'm out. Like, I got stuff to do. I'm gone. That's very nice that you'd like me to worry about this thing, but time has passed, right? Like I've had this experience and it's not a catastrophe. So you guys, you want to be my unconscious and battle it out? I'm done. There's no more Googling. There's no more back and forth of what it could be or couldn't be and scaring me and then comforting myself and scaring me and comforting myself. There's just movement. And so I'm just going to take off, so to speak, and get away from this nonsensical debate. And my therapist always said, but if it continues for at least two weeks, call your doctor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's good advice. Good advice. (laughs) (laughs) That was always her thing. (laughs) (laughs) So Adam, I'm curious, you know, you've talked about your evolution of writing this album and now it's out and you've been performing these songs now. What is it like to perform them live for yourself, to express them out in the world and to relive them and to sing them and to play them? So what is it like for you? And also what has been the response from other people too? I mean, the the response has been great. I mean, it's, I'll be honest, it's small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I know I went into this with kind of no expectations and I'll tell a quick story then. I mean, playing it is the greatest thing in the world. Like I was in a band for all of high school and all of college and after college. And I toured with Matt Desiao for five or six years, which we're starting up again this coming March. I'm opening up for Matt Desiao on an eight-date acoustic tour and then also playing guitar for him. So there'll be a lot of me on stage, which will be super fun. But the process really was... I think I went in with no expectations. Like I want to do this because it's healing. And I think it's a good way to honor my brother-in-law. And it's a way to get these things that I've been working out of my head into something creative that I love. But I was always like, no expectations, no expectations. So then I finished the record and I had vocals on there and they were good. Okay, they're good enough for me. Matt Tisiao during COVID was living down here in Florida. For about six months, he, he rented a house to get out of the very challenging nature of, of what New York was, obviously, during COVID. So he came here and I played it for him. And to his credit, he was like really impressed with the arrangements and the music. And I recorded with DJ LaSpam, who, if, if you remember, DJ LaSpam did the Vita Blue albums with Paige. Uh, yeah. So DJ LaSpam and Spam All Stars were on that. So he has a fully analog studio here in Miami, everything to tape. And he's become a good friend. And we recorded there. And so it sounded amazing. And my friend Arturo, who wrote the horn and string arrangements, were killer. And But my vocals, I'm not a singer. I'm not a trained singer. I never made an album with vocals. So I played it for him. And he was like, the vocals are not at a level that matches the musicianship. And he's like, you should bring all your recording gear to my house. And I will teach you how to sing and write vocal harmonies. And we will work on it. Because he was like, 
we've been very, very close friends for a long time, for probably 20-something years. And I was the first promoter to bring him outside of New York to do a show, and he became religious. It also kind of ties into me trying to tie in like music that I love into spirituality. That's 20, 21 years ago at this point or something like that. So he was super kind to me and was like, come up. And we spent like three or four days just working on like, I didn't know how to sing. You know, I didn't know where the breath was supposed to come from. He would like have me on the floor lifting arm. Oh, you know, like all this stuff, like getting access to the diaphragm. And then we would just listen to one song at a time and he would help me write vocal harmonies and help me and just sing. And he would sit there and listen. And this went on for like 10 or 12 days. And at the end of it, the vocals were like, I still don't think I'm a great singer, but there's really interesting vocal harmonies on there that I'm proud of. The tonality of my voice is a whole lot better than it was on the version I played him. And that's all to his credit. And so then I was like super proud of it. Then I was like, okay, now like this doesn't just have to be for like my little circle of people. Cause I would have been a little self-conscious about like, oh, it's great music, but am I really proud of my singing? And, and so then I started like playing it around for people and I still was trying to have like the no expectations thing. But then like a record label got a hold of it and was like, this works for us. We'll release it and we'll cover pretty much everything to release it. And I was like, really? You will? And then like I was in LA and I met with them and they were like, yeah, we're going to sign this incredible human named Eva to the project and she's going to do all this work for you. And I was like, really? We're going to get you a publicist and we're going to help get you shows. And they got me on NPR and PBS. They got me on Wood Songs and they got me on Folk and Acoustic Music. And they did a thing down at the Clear Channel station down here in Florida. I was like, all of a sudden, it's very hard to have no expectations, right? Then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you're like, well, well Mattis Yahoo likes it and the record label likes it. And this person. So then all of a sudden, like now... So then I had to go through this sort of cycle. of Okay, but I'm still just this small potatoes thing. And so I started doing shows and the release show was incredible. We brought in a a full horn section to do everything. And we did a whole, we did the whole album front to back and we sold the show out, which was a lot of me forcing all my friends and family to come, but but it worked really well. And then I worked with Andrea Bocelli full time. So I went back to doing a lot of that work. And then I've done a bunch of other solo shows. I was at a Nashville festival recently. I played a few showcases. There's a club here that started booking me once a month that I've been playing at that's been going really well. And and then Matt Shaw offered me the opportunity for coming to Marsh to do this tour opening up and playing guitar from, which is what I used to do on the acoustic shows a little while back. So that'll be kind of for me, outside of I've done probably, you know, a dozen kind of one-offs in the last six months since it came out, but this will be like eight shows in a row every night, getting to play the material with someone who taught me a lot about making material better. So for me, this tour in March will just mean a lot because I haven't like gone on the road road. Awesome. Do you notice them getting emotional or does it make them think about different things? Like, has anybody reflected that back to you? Yeah. So there's a few people. Elizabeth Beck is one of them who we mentioned earlier on, who's been incredibly kind about it. And we made a book. I mean, it's a weird story, but we made a book for the album. So there's there's a guy, his name was Mel Marcel. He sadly passed away of a heart attack about maybe a year ago now even, who was a graphic artist in San Diego. He did all the posters for the arenas there. So he, you know, he'd do everybody. I met him through doing Bocelli. He did Bocelli posters. And he would always do something really unique to the artist. So Bocelli, who is blind, you know, he did the the poster in Braille with a thank you letter to him and, you know, on the poster. So the poster was tactile, right? He was incredible. So during COVID also, I hit him up and I was like, have these 12 songs. I'm like, you're my favorite artist. What will it cost? Let's do this. And he made a whole book. So it's like lyrics and stories, some of that I'm sharing now. And these 
gorgeously stunning photos. And, and the joke was for a while when the book came out, it was like, people being like, I hope the music's as good as the art. And it's true. Like he was a top level, top level artist. So I had these things that I was proud of and there were fans who connected to that, right? Who would like weave like some of the art with the music. And so there are a few women online who are Matt Tisio fans who saw me perform a lot with Matt Tisio over the years who have followed my own music as well. It's very kind of them. And there's one of them in particular who drove to Chicago when I was working for Bocelli and had printed out the lyrics from the book and wanted me and told me a whole story, you know, about her daughter and what she had gone through and how it was your time. And it was about how she was doing the same kind of thing about over-identifying and she had to go through this process. And I've had a hand. I mean, that was the most direct one where this woman like drove to somewhere she didn't live to like find me and bought tickets to see Andrea Bocelli to like track me down and hand me these lyrics and tell her what they meant to her. So that obviously it's hard not to, to feel something real deep when that happens. So if that's all the album did, great, you know, home run. I think that's for a lot of people, especially creative people, people in our shared communities. That's, I think, who we want to be. We want at the end of the day, I say this to my nine-year-old son all the time, and I'm not throwing him under the bus because he's nine. But I tell him when he's being nine, sometimes I say, what kind of person do you want to be seen as in your family, right? If you're throwing a tantrum every time someone takes away the ball that you thought was yours, that's how you're going to be seen. Now he's nine and I probably should shut up and be a lot nicer. And I'm sure a better therapist would tell me that's not how you handle it. But the concept is, I think we all want to be seen as people who contribute something good and who want to be loved and part of a community. So if someone tells you your music is doing that for them, I mean... That's obviously kind of going to be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's great. So these shows start March 14th. Is that correct? Yeah. And where where are they? Bloomington, Indiana. On the 14th, Charlotte, North Carolina. I mean, you go to mattsoworld.com or Adam Weinberg Music. Actually, sorry, do not go to Adam Weinberg Music. Go to adam-weinberg.com. <laughs> Adam Weinberg Music is... Don't go to that website. Before I ever tried to buy a website, somebody owns that site and you can guess what it is. And it is not me. Um, and the record, the record label tried to buy it for me back. And the guy wanted like 2500 bucks, And I was like, I'll just buy adam-weinberg.com. <laughs> but anyways, you can see the tour dates. Anyways, it's March 14th is, is Bloomington. 15th is Charlotte. 19 is Jacksonville. And then two shows in West Palm Beach. No, sorry. Two shows in Aventura on March 21st and 22nd. Two shows in West Palm Beach on 25th and 26th. All right. Amazing. Everybody go get your therapy on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can hold sessions afterwards. <laughs> well, Adam, thank you so much. Is there thank anything you. else that you'd like? Any last parting words? I mean, I thank both of you. I think this is a really wonderful thing trying to combine these things. I not necessarily forcefully combine them, but just naturally because I think they are inherent in music. But yeah, no, just thank you so much for this opportunity. And I hope people enjoy the record. And whether the lyrics mean anything therapeutic or not, hopefully the, the music provides that in and it of itself sonically. It just means a lot to, to be able to connect to other aspects of our music community, my own music. I've done a lot of stuff in the fish world over the years, and I'm, I'm happy about that as well. I have always like, you know, little guitar tutorials on like some of the harder fish songs and things like that, that a lot of people in like fish guitar heads will stop me at MSG and be like, Oh, thanks for the stash lesson or thanks for the, the harmony lesson on this, which is great. I still do that stuff every day, but it's super awesome to be able to put your own creativity out into the world and have it resonate with some people. So, you know, thanks for listening. 
that's my final message. <laughs> well, I think you were like the perfect guest because you're very aware that live music has this healing aspect to it and the health and wellness part of it where not all of our guests are aware of that coming in. They usually leave with that. But you knew. So it had a whole nother amazing, beautiful perspective for everybody to see and learn from. So thank you so much. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you as well. Yay. All right, right, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. After having your mind blown from Mr. Adam Weinberg. Yeah, that was so lovely. I loved that whole conversation that we just had. I know, like that's our jam, what he was talking about. (laughs) Yeah, so great that he reached out to us and so great to be able to bring him on and talk about his new album. I mean, I wonder how many other musicians produce an album in that way. I think that would be really interesting if we could like bring together... Because I can't imagine that that's a typical process where it's like really brought about from the expression of the therapeutic expression of what's happening in life and then happens to be produced out into the world. And how cool that there was a record label that was like, yes, we really value this project and we want to get behind you and, and really support you in getting this out into the world. I love that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, another. Two artists I know that do this. I lived with one. They were both guests, but Haley Jane and Ryan Montblue, they both, when things happen to them, use that in songs. Yeah. But do they do it with the intention of creating an album? They just use that as the inspiration. I mean, oftentimes then those thought like Haley wrote a whole bunch of songs based on something that happened to her and that became an album. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I would say differently. He does it with to write a song. And because some songs he starts now and then he's not done for like 10 years. Other songs he writes really quickly. It just all depends. So I would say that he doesn't do it with the intention of an album. I could be wrong, Ryan, if you're listening and I'm wrong, please let me know. (laughs) But Haley typically like thinks of something and it becomes an album. And then she like has something else and it becomes an album. So I don't know if she's consciously like this, but that's what happens. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. I love that. Well, and the healthy expression of emotions is so important to move through things. So I'd love to talk more about that for thee. Did you know? So Adam really gave such a great insight in or like glimpse into his process of moving through this and his own therapy work. And I love that. And, you know, he talked a lot about CBT and how his therapist was really moving him through that modality. But I want to just say in general, how important it is to use art for the healthy expression of emotions. Of course, you know, there are many ways to work with emotions and many of us are not taught how to healthily express emotions. And so most of us just stuff them down or we try to ignore them or we just push through. And Adam came to a point in his life where it wasn't, he couldn't push through anymore. Like the anxiety was really ruining his life, which is when something becomes a disorder. Like a disorder is taking over your life. It has to have so many symptoms present for two weeks or more. It's not just 
having a depressed mood for a couple of days or an anxious mood for a couple of days. But in general, having art in your life to express emotions is so important because art allows us this outlet to be able to let it out and to be able to feel it. It's just like music. I love live music because it helps me to feel. And any kind of art can allow us to be able to do that. And the good thing about art, just like music, is that there are so many different options for art. There is the creating of music, which is what Adam did. There's the writing of the lyrics, which is also what he engaged in. So you can write, you could write a story, you could write a poem. You know, journaling is another form of this too, where you just kind of write what's coming up. And the the difference in this form of art is that it's not for the end product, right? Just like Adam wasn't doing this to create an album in the beginning. He was doing it because he was working through things in his own life. And the way that he was able to do that was through his art, which is music. You could also dance, you could draw, you could paint, right? So like painting, it's not about creating a beautiful painting. It's about saying, okay, how am I feeling right now in this moment? Right now in this moment, I am feeling all of this grief, what color is that grief, right? That's a great place to start with it. It's like, what color do you want to express that grief, right? So black is the color that comes to my mind, but maybe you choose purple or red or whatever it might be. And then you just start with the color black. And then what does it look like? Is it a circle? Is it a, how big is it, right? And then you just keep going from there until you feel like you don't have anything more to express. And then maybe you rip up the page or you, whatever you want to do with it. You know, it's really about just being in the moment and being with the emotions. And we don't take the time to do that. And of course, you can do this working with a therapist. There are many art therapists that you could work with. There are many other therapists that are going to support you in your own process in doing this. But you could also do this just as a person who doesn't have a therapist. But is a living, breathing human being that is going to have emotions come up as you're going through life. And this is one of the best ways to be able to move through them is through art. So choose your art, express your emotions, and hopefully it's going to help you feel a lot better. Yes, wonderful. And so I'm actually going to give a practical idea to maybe help you figure out exactly what that is that you want to take to express that grief or that anxiety or whatever it is that you are going through in this moment for my part. Daily Jam. So I want you to think back to when you were a little kid because almost all little kids are super expressive in some way and really gravitate towards something. I personally love to finger paint. I also love dancing. I loved writing poems. I loved writing in my journal. So just think about when you were a kid, what did you like to do? Did you... And the way that you expressed yourself, like how did you like to express yourself? Did you write letters to people? Did you paint on a canvas? Did you dance around in your house? Did you put on productions for your family? What did you do to express yourself? And so my challenge for you is to think about what that was when you were a kid that you used to express yourself and bring that into your day as soon as possible when you have a moment and allow yourself to feel your grief and express yourself through that art, whatever it is. Yes. 
and let us know how it goes. You don't have to show us what you create or bring any details about what you're moving through, but just say, hey, I realized that when I was a kid, I loved to do this. And now I can bring that into my adult life too, to express my emotions. So you can do that at our community on Facebook, the Groove Therapy Podcast community. And let us know how you feel. It's always a good idea to kind of take a little check in with yourself before you do anything like that. And then check in with yourself after you do something like that, just so you can notice, you know, bring some mindfulness into whether it's helping or not. But I bet it does. I bet it does too. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going to sign off and let you go off to your healthy emotional expression and just kind of Think back on how you like to express yourself. We love you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and we'll see you next time. Yes, we love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We so appreciate you. And if you did love this episode, we would love it so much if you could share it with at least one friend that you think might love it as well. So just send it over to them Let them know what you loved about it. It could just be like, hey, check this out or one word about how it inspired you. Also, wherever you are listening to your podcast, if you could just click that follow button right there, that would be super awesome. That helps to let the platform know that this is a podcast worth listening to. And also, if you are listening on Apple Pod, if you could not only follow us, but also leave a rating or a review, it would mean so much to us. That, again, is how more people are going to be able to find out about this podcast and really start to open their mind about the intersection between health and wellness and live music and why this experience is so important for our health and our well-being and our longevity. So again, thank you so much for listening. We are a part of Osiris Pod. You can find many more inspiring arts and music podcasts at osirispod.com. And if you would like to follow me, Leah, or Tara Lee, you can find us on Instagram. Tara Lee is at rocking life with two underscores. And I am at Dr. Leah Taylor. So come follow us there. We love you so much. And thank you again for listening. 